Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and this week I had the opportunity to connect with Dr. Christopher Yuan, professor at Moody Bible Institute. Christopher is an important voice in the contemporary church, speaking regularly at seminaries, conferences, and events on the topic of faith and sexuality. Christopher's latest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, equips us to better understand sexuality in light of God's grand story and helps us navigate questions about sexual identity from a biblical perspective. In this episode, Christopher shares from his own experience of coming to Christ out of a homosexual lifestyle and the redeeming power of Christ. Christopher and I talk about how pastors can better respond to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Christopher shares how the enemy tries to immobilize us as believers when it comes to helping others who are struggling, and he also shatters the entire paradigm of gay and straight. This is such a helpful and much-needed conversation for ministry today, so please won't you join me in my conversation with Christopher Yuan. Christopher, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. So happy you could join us today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Jason. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about our conversation um, because it's around a topic that all of us as pastors and ministry leaders were faced with, and uh, <laughs> that's the topic of um, sexuality and, and what does that mean from a biblical perspective and how do we enter into conversations when culture around us is, is wrestling with these same questions, how do we speak into these from a place of, of biblical wisdom and uh, mm. faith? And Christopher, you, you've shared that you lived a homosexual lifestyle in your 20s. You, you felt you were far from God during that period of your life. What eventually caused you on your journey to embrace faith in Christ? Well, you know, Jason, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, uh, but from a young age, I wrestled with my sexuality. Um, I realized I had these attractions when I was about nine years old. I was exposed to pornography at a, a trusted family friend's house. Uh, I kept those hidden through high school, college, Marine Corps uh, reserves even. Uh, I finally came out of the closet. I'm from Chicago, and I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. And there I came out of the closet and I broke the news to my parents. And remember, they're not Christian, but amazingly, God used that crisis to bring them to faith, my mother to faith, and then my father to faith. Mm. And I went in the opposite direction, wanted nothing to do with Christianity. I, While I was in dental school, I was just doing you know, what my classmates were doing, and that was to have fun, to, to party, to go out to the bars, go out to the clubs. I, unfortunately, I started experimenting with drugs uh, and, and 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 eventually started selling drugs. And to be clear, not all gay men do drugs or are promiscuous. Unfortunately, that is part of my story. And but I want to tell you the whole part and uh, and be honest about that. Unfortunately, about my past. But the amazing thing is how God redeems um, everything uh, when you encounter Him. So I was in dental school and um, selling drugs, trying to be, you know, live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. Eventually I was expelled from dental school. And then I, and I was just three months away from getting my doctorate. So I was really close. I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and there I kept doing what I knew how to do best at that time, which was to have fun. You know, life is short, right? That's the, 
the the motto of of our youth, especially you know those who don't know Christ, live it up. And and I did. I tried. I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. And this whole time, my parents had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me. And that was probably, you know, my closest contact with the gospel was my parents. Uh, They lived the gospel before they preached the gospel. They came to visit me one time. And then, of course, I, I did not like that. I, I bought into what the world was telling me that that my Christian parents cannot love me as a gay son. And uh, and, and we hear that, you know, so much in Hollywood, in the movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian parents are hateful. Christian parents uh, despise and reject their gay son. But uh, honestly, I had the exact opposite experience. My parents were not Christian and they rejected me. They gave me an ultimatum. And it wasn't only after... I, they became Christian that they knew they could do nothing other than to love their gay son as they loved them while they were sinners, while they were weak, and while they were even enemies, um, just like Romans 5. So they tried to reach out to me, and I, I honestly, I, I thought they had lost their minds. I, I thought, you know, good for you, not for me. And uh, they came to visit me one time, and I kicked them out. My dad gave me his Bible before he left, and I threw it in the trash can. That's that's how much I despise Christianity. Mm. And it was so obvious that I was totally unreachable and hopeless. But praise the Lord, my mom, my dad, they didn't focus on the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And they enlisted over 100 prayer warriors to begin praying for me. And my mother began to pray a really, really bold prayer. God do whatever it takes mm. to bring this prodigal son to you. And that's that's a pretty bold prayer. Yeah. It's desperate. And she fa- she began fasting every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. Well, she prayed for a miracle, and this miracle came with a bang on my door. On my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. So I was arrested, found myself in jail. I... Um, and I called home, just dreading making that phone call. Um, after I tried calling my friends, who no one answered my phone call, and tried calling home, and you know, my mother's first words were, "Are you okay?" Um, I'm reminded, you know, what Paul says that it's in Romans uh, two verse four that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Yes. So I was walking around the cell block a few days after that, passed by this garbage can, and I thought, "This is my life." I was about to pass it by, and there on top of the trash was a Gideon's New Testament. (laughs) Took that New Testament back to my cell, and I began reading it. And I thought, well, people say this is good news. Well, at first, it was not good news because it was revealing how I was rebelling against my government, against my parents, even against a holy God. And um, so I, you know, I thought things couldn't get worse. Well, they did. I was uh, called into the nurse's office. She gave me the news that I was HIV positive. So a few days after that, I was laying in my bed, looked up at the metal bunk above me, and someone had scribbled something, and it read, If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And God used those words to tell me that he still had a plan for me. I didn't know where those plans were going to take me, but God gave me enough faith and enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. So I began wrestling with 
this new faith, what that meant and what that meant regarding my sexuality. God was convicting me of my idols, obviously drugs, but within a few months, God delivered me from that bondage. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was one big one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexual identity. So I went to a chaplain, asked him his opinion, and to my surprise, he told me the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality, and he even gave me a book explaining that view. So I took that book with much curiosity, and I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other, you know, and everything, Jason, inside of me wanted to accept and affirm and receive what this book is claiming. Mm -hmm. But as I read it with scripture, it was God's indwelling Holy Spirit that convicted me that those assertions were a clear distortion of God and his words. So I gave the book back to the chaplain and I turned to the Bible alone. And I began searching scripture. I really, really wanted to find justification. I went through the whole Bible and I couldn't find any, which meant I was at a turning point. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship, or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. Mm -hmm. So the days and the weeks of abstinence passed, and I realized my sexuality shouldn't be grounded in my sexuality. See, I told myself before God loved me unconditionally, and we know that's true, but, you know, as sinners, we, we like to add to God's truth. And I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. But I realized after reading through the Bible that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Mm. It's really, unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality, whether gay or straight or bi. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual, romantic, or any other desires. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It is not even heterosexual for that matter. But my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. Because change is not the absence of temptations. God, you know, we think that if you're, if you, you know, if you still have those temptations, then you haven't been changed. But if temptation, if Jesus was tempted in every way and he is the Holy One, then we can't say that temptation in and of itself is, is, is sin. Um, God also says, be holy for I am holy. And that's really important uh, because I think for the longest time we thought that the opposite of homosexuality is heterosexuality, as if that's the goal. But even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to resist temptations. So heterosexuality, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness, just as the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. Wow. And that's where I can step up holy sexuality. Um, and it's, and I, I knew, um, you know, while I was in prison kind of came up with this, but I got out of prison and I applied to Moody Bible Institute where, um, I graduated in 2005, went after my master's in exegesis from Wheaton and then got my doctorate of ministry in 2014. And then in 2011, co-authored a book with my mother called out of a far country, a gay son's journey to God, a broken mother's search for hope, which it's been, it's yeah, in 2011 and you know, it's been eight years and still doing really well. We actually have um, just found we have over 100,000 in print and, and parents are using it. It's one of the few resources out there where it has a parent and a prodigal writing it from this uh, about biblical sexuality. And even Christian high schools are using it. Kind of cool. 
But I introduced that concept of holy sexuality toward the end of that new book in a very, very short chapter, kind of while I was still, it was it was in the context of my my story. And I knew that I needed to flesh that out with this new book uh, that, that I wrote called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. Wow, Christopher, that's uh, quite a journey. Um, for those of you who do, do not know your story, I know they're all they're listening right now, and 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 their jaws probably dropped. But it's amazing to see how God has redeemed, uh, redeemed your story in, in such a uh, powerful way. Can you talk to us a little bit? Um, you said that you touched on holy sexuality um, in in the very end of of your first book, but now you've you've written this entire book entitled Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. Just real quickly, you mentioned that um, our identity isn't found in our sexuality, whether um, homosexual, um, heterosexual, bisexual, whatever it might be. How do you define this idea of holy sexuality? I know there are like kind of a couple key terms that that are at the core of this holy sexuality. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, so identity is so important that I think we really miss because I don't know of any sin issue where we've conflated our desires with personhood. Mm. You know, yeah. or, or even our behaviors um, with personhood. If a person is a liar, we don't view that as who they are, but what they do. If a person is an adulteress, that's not who she is, but what she's done. But when it comes to sexuality, again, whether gay or straight, so I think both terms are, are not terms that we sh- we should be very careful as Christians when we use those words. Uh, but for this, you know, we, we don't see this as um, you know, people see sexuality and sexual orientation as who they are, when in reality it's how we are. There's a that's a big important distinction, and I and I and I talk about how we can't understand human sexuality unless we begin with theological anthropology that we're created in the image of God, and that we all have a sin nature, and that's really key and important. Because when we understand sexuality in that way, we'll be able to really be able to answer a lot of questions. For example, um, you know, when people say, well, this is, you know, I, I've never chose this or I've, I've been this way for as long as I remember. Well, same thing with the sin nature. But holy sexuality is simply I came up with this concept and it actually I didn't really come up with anything new. It's, it's really just a biblical concept. I just came up with this new phrase. But I came up with this new phrase because I wanted to disentangle the confusion around this, the concept of sexuality and how we have pigeonholed ourselves into this framework, heterosexual, bisexual, and homosexual, thinking that that's the only paradigm that we can think about sexuality, when it actually it's really a secular paradigm grounded in secular anthropology, that there is no God, that we basically have to create our own meaning and purpose and value. And, and we don't believe that because God tells us something different. So I think we need to do away this paradigm and come up with a biblical paradigm and, or look to the biblical paradigm, which is simply holiness, holy sexuality. God only lays out two paths for us to live, either if you're single, be sexually abstinent, or if you are married, and I'm, when I say married, I'm not taking the worldly definition of marriage, but the biblical definition of marriage, which is one husband, one wife, which Jesus affirmed in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. And so if you're married, then you're going to be faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So quite simply, holy sexuality is chastity and singleness and faithfulness or faithfulness in marriage. And that Jason is really good news for all. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Now, in in the book, you kind of unpack this emphasis that the church places on sort of a healthy expression of sexuality in marriage. 
So, yeah. so Christopher, as as the church, what do you think um, we've missed about the experience of being single? Yeah, I, I think we have sometimes, I mean, obviously, marriage is good. It's, you know, a holy institution um, that, that, you know, is where we are able to experience uh, love and um, expression of sexual intimacy. But I think we need to realize that we cannot view marriage as the ultimate expression of love. Here's, here's something really important. Marriage does not have a monopoly on love. Mm. The uh, marriage equality, and I, I put quotes around that, marriage equality, quote unquote, um, movement, which of course now it's kind of passed and gone, especially after the um, that watershed uh, the, uh, decision by the Supreme Court, the Obergefell decision, which uh, was quite unfortunate. But the after that, it's it's kind of a moot point now. But but what the their battle cry in a sense was marriage. Without marriage, a person has no meaning or value or dignity. And that is completely false. Mm. Marriage is good, but it does not give us value or purpose or dignity or joy. I mean, yes, it can provide joy, but that's not the only means of joy. Uh, and unfortunately, I think the church has also played into that as well, where we have treated marriage to be better than singleness. And yet we forget that our perfect Savior Jesus was single, and he was not an immature man. He was not trying to shed uh, responsibility, which, and I admit, there are many single men and women that are uh, trying to avoid marriage uh, because, you know, they're afraid of commitment or responsibility. But the mistake that I often find uh, pastors do is then they try to make their these men to marry when they're still spiritually immature. And I tell them, actually, that the answer is not that they get married. The answer is, first, that they would be converted. Second, that they would actually become a man of God. Because if a person you know, gets married without being a, a mature man of God, that's, that man will not be a, a godly husband, and it will not be better— uh, you know, for that person to marry when that person is not a mature, godly man. And of course, I'm not saying that, that a person has to be perfect to get married, but um, we shouldn't think that marriage is what provides a person to be mature or whole. And so that's important. But but realizing that singleness is actually good, mm. that singleness in Christ is good, at, just as marriage in Christ is good as well. Because when we, we read word, Jesus' words in Matthew 22, Jesus says that there will be no marriage in heaven. And that's a pretty radical statement. So when we think, well, you know, the subtitle of my book is Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. What is God's Grand Story? Well, it's the, God's redemptive arc in Scripture and, and the history of mankind, beginning with creation, then fall, then redemption, the coming of Christ and the Messiah, and then finally consummation, which is what is yet to come. So we're we're living in the already not yet, which is so important because um, we're living in the already in that the kingdom of God is here, but also it's it's also still coming. 
in, in the same way, sanctification, we are sanctified in Christ, but we're also being sanctified. And when Christ returns, we will be fully sanctified. We will be fully united with him. So living in that reality and recognizing that singleness is good, we should not denigrate singleness because honestly, I think that one of the mistakes that we've made that have tied that have really actually amplified uh, the push by those who who are advocating for quote unquote marriage equality um, is that we have denigrated singleness. We have we even believe what they believe that singleness to be single is unfair. To to ask someone to remain single is to relegate them to a life of loneliness. Actually, that's that's right from the Supreme Court documents. Uh, Justice Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion, he said that uh, to deny someone to marry is to relegate them to a life of loneliness, and that is simply a lie. Mm. I mean, it's surprising that comes from someone who claims to be a man of faith. Obviously, he knows nothing about Jesus because Jesus was not relegated to a life of loneliness. So anyway, I I could go on and on, but I think singleness, I I think we're not ready to address this issue of homosexuality or even sexual brokenness until we first redeem biblical singleness. Yeah, no, that's good, Christopher. That's that's very helpful. One of the things that uh, we as pastors and ministry leaders are being faced with uh, more and more are conversations with, with people, uh, maybe in our church or in our community, who mm-hmm. um, are wrestling with same-sex attraction. Uh, yes. So, so Christopher, can you, you help us from a kind of a pastoral perspective? Like, what, what caution do you have for pastors who are trying to help someone who is um, kind of navigating same-sex attraction yet wants mm-hmm. to follow Jesus? Yeah, I would say, so if someone um, is experiencing, you know, in in wrestling with their sexuality, who's a follower of Christ, I mean, first and foremost, that's that's always my first question, is this person a follower of Christ? Um, And and it's funny because I always get so many different answers, you know, people like, oh, yeah, or or maybe I'm asking about, you know, a loved one, uh, and they, you know, say, yes, you know, my... My son, uh, you know, was baptized or, you know, when they was younger, did this or, you know, oh, I I know God. Um, But, you know, demons know God. So the question is right now, are we fully and completely surrendered to Christ where it's not just knowledge, but this faith that leads to repentance, faith that leads to full surrender? Um, And uh, so that's the important question. Is this person really surrendered to Christ? Um, But then. You know, I, I really want to hear them and, and, and see where they're coming from, because I often find people on either side um, of the spectrum. You know, we, we tend to be on the polar extremes where on one side, someone may may be so, um, uh, you know, so weighed down with guilt simply for the fact for experiencing attractions toward the same sex and never even acting on it. And I, I want to let and, and they feel guilty, ashamed, and I want to let them know to comfort them and, and let them know that, you, you know, thanks for telling me. Uh, but I want you to know that really you're no different than any other person who's struggling with their sin nature. If anything, others aren't as broken about their own struggle and they need to be, uh, you know, more uh, saddened about 
their struggle with sin. Mm -hmm. But I want to encourage them to let them know, don't give up the fight, but don't beat up yourself for simply uh, struggling uh, and being tempted and and count the victories. But then I get others who are maybe on the other extreme who would say, you know, uh, you know, it's it's fine. Um, you know, it, you know, kind of really trivializing this, you know, what's so wrong about this and, and that where they need maybe a more stronger rebuke or someone who might say, well, this is who I am. Um, or, or, and they might even say, you know, um, I, I guess I just need to be called to a life of celibacy. And, and I want to tell them that, you know, it's, I'm glad that you're finding that, that God can still work through you when you're not, when you're not married. But I want to tell them, don't plan out your future. Leave the future in God's hands. This is why I, I'm, I don't use, I don't ever use the word celibacy. I think uh, that, that's a term that oftentimes we find people using today. Uh, I, I don't use the word gay either. So sometimes you'll hear people say, I'm a gay celibate Christian. I think the word gay is problematic because it's it's conflated with personhood and essence uh, as the world uses it. Uh, but I don't use the word celibacy either because it's associated with a lifelong chosen vocation. And I simply don't find that in scripture. The word celibacy is not found in the Bible. Um, the concept of a, of a lifelong chosen vocation is not found in scripture, but singleness is basically the state of singleness. And so I, I want to tell people, do not plan out your future. Uh, you're called to be single today, but who knows what tomorrow may bring and leave that open. Because I, I honestly, I believe I believe in a big, big God <laughs> that he can do whatever he wants. Right. Uh, so it's important. Uh, but again, you know, the other extreme, I'm kind of pointing all these extremes. You, yeah, I know someone who would say, um, you know, I just want to get married to a woman. That's going to be kind of like my, my solution. And I tell them, you know what, that's great that you uh, value the goodness of marriage between a man and a woman, but don't make that your goal or your panacea as if it's going to be the cure-all for your struggles because marriage should never be viewed in that way. Whether a person has opposite sex attractions or same sex attractions, could I see that same thing right. even – and who have opposite sex attractions, they think, oh man, if I just get married, that will be the cure for my porn struggle. And the answer right, right. is absolutely not. So it's having that balance of, of whether that person needs encouragement, and this is good for a pastor. And if I could add also, because um, I often hear this from pastors, that uh, they have a young man um, that comes in their office, and, and or a young lady um, who comes to their office and, and confides with a pastor or, or a church leader or elder or deacon or, or maybe someone in, you know, over a director of the women's ministry, a lady that comes in and shares with her, uh, whatever it is. But I often hear this where they say, they come to me and they say, I have no clue how to help this individual. And, you know, I say, why? And they say, well, I don't, I don't have same-sex attractions. I've never struggled with my sexuality in that way. So I don't know where to start. And I think, I mean, that's a, a really honest answer. And I appreciate uh, their transparency there. But I believe that this is the enemy trying to immobilize us to thinking we can't help another sinner. Because, Jason, if you think about this, I, I really don't know of any other sin issue where we think that we actually have to personally struggle with that exact sin to help another sinner, yeah. or that we have to actually do that sin to help that other individual, uh, because you know the, the the reality is, you know, if if a person is 
you know, struggling with heroin, <laughs> you know, do we have to actually, uh, you know, shoot up with heroin to help another heroin, heroin right. addict? If this, you know, looking at pornography, do we have to actually struggle with pornography to help that person? Or if an adulteress uh, is, is, you know, do we have to commit adultery to help that person? Of course not. But for some reason, for this particular sin, um, you know, we think we have to actually struggle with it ourselves to help that person, but it's the enemy trying to mobilize us. And here's the truth. If, if, if we are a follower of Christ and if we've ever had victory over our own sin, we can help another sinner. And that's really important for us to realize. That's good. That, that's so good, Christopher. You know, there's been much discussion recently about conversion therapy, right? Many, mm-hmm. many states are passing laws to regulate it. Uh, some longtime yes. advocates have uh, drawn attention to its potential harm. You know, there's lots, lots of press coverage on on some different ministries that were really focused on conversion therapy. And uh, Chris, I'm just curious from your experience and your studies and in all that you do, what are your thoughts on conversion therapy? Can can it be harmful? Are there times when it can be helpful? Just, yeah. Yeah. What do you see there? Yeah. So in, in my own personal journey, so I, I don't, I can't speak from personal experience because I, when I came out of Moody Bible, uh, when I came out of prison, I went right to Moody Bible Institute and there was no, at that time in Chicago, no ministry, uh, at, you know, at, at that time, Exodus was still quite active in, uh, 2001 when I got out of prison, there was no ministry. Um, and uh, so I can't say firsthand, I know people who say they've been helped, um, but but here's my struggle. Uh, I, I, I struggle. Oh, oh, before I make that statement, I want to be very clear uh, that I think it is um, a gross mistake of the government, the state governments and the local governments today to try to make this illegal or to um, especially California is is they're doing a lot of push to to make reparative therapy illegal or to uh, say it's fraud. I mean, it's usually illegal in the sense of, in the business sense. So Mm -hmm. it's not illegal in the, uh, um, a a civil issue, but it's, it's more in the sense of business. So it's, they will call it fraudulent behavior. You can get your license taken away or you can get fined. I think that's a huge mistake, not because I'm arguing it from a Christian perspective, but, but it's just, it's, it's pure example of, it's textbook example of government overreach. Uh, the government um, has, they're not psychologists, they're not counselors, um, and even psychology, um, the DCM-5 uh, and, and all these professional organizations, their decisions are, are more guided by activism than actual science. Uh, so I, I wanna make that statement before I make my other statement that although I completely disagree that it is actually causing harm, the only evidence that people claim that harm is made is purely anecdotal. So in other words, all these laws are being passed right now, uh, maybe in over half of our states, all these laws are based purely on anecdote, which is a scary thing to base law on. Mm. Um, there's no peer-reviewed studies for people uh, claiming harm, psychological, physical harm, etc. People people say that anecdotally, but there's nothing peer-reviewed. Not to say that we should hear those, but as we hear those, we also need to hear the other side. And of course, that's not being done. With that being said, that's a kind of my political uh, response. 
But I want to say something biblical. Though I do not see that harm is made, we need to see uh, if this is a biblical a biblical or Christian response. The problem is for reparative therapy is that it is diagnosing this incorrectly. In other words, it's diagnosing this as a disease, as a developmental disorder. Um, really, reparative therapy is rooted in um, this idea that one's sexuality is uh, developed over time, and when there a person has same-sex attractions, the problem is rooted in one's childhood, that that child, their sexuality growth was somehow stunted. And do you know where that comes from, Jason? That comes purely from Sigmund Freud. Mm. Freud believes that um, this stems from an over-dominant mother, the uh, Oedipus complex. That's purely Freud. Um, and then Elizabeth Moberly developed that a little further and then added the absentee father uh, assertion. The problem with that is it's treating this again like a developmental disorder. Let's go to scripture. Scripture clearly causes sinful behavior. There's not, you know, we have to be really, we have to, if you're Christian, if you hold to the Bible, uh, this is sinful behavior. Well, then what's the root cause of sinful behavior? Because we hear people say the root causes of homosexuality are absentee father, dominant mother, abuse in one's childhood. And they're trying to base that really more on anecdotal data, again, relying on anecdotal data, than, than scripture. And when we look to scripture, we find that the root cause of sinful behavior is our sin nature. So what does that mean? This is what it means. The true and correct uh, diagnosis is that sin is the problem. And if sin is the problem, that means Christ is the answer. And that is about as gospel of an answer that, that we can come with anything else. I mean, it's it really is rooted in our sin nature. Certainly, can our the way we're brought up and upbringing affect us? Yes, I, I, I totally get that. However, this belief that somehow by resolving our childhood traumas can somehow do away with our sin nature is quite is is very much unbiblical, and um, so yes, we should try to find res resolution on you know whether there was abuse or whether there's you have not good relationship with your parents, but that never will nullify the reality of our sin nature. That can make us more healthy as an individual, but uh, ultimately the problem is sin and Christ is the answer. That's good, Christopher. It's it's fascinating as you kind of unpack all of this, um, and it kind of leads me to, to another question that I imagine there are probably other pastors listening and kind of thinking through as well. Um, oftentimes, um, with, with, uh, with a lot of different things, and rightly so, um, we find ourselves in in a place of biblical counseling, and we mm. might see that um, uh, the person needs, uh, 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 or we feel they need some deeper counseling that maybe we don't feel qualified to to provide, right? And so then we might refer them to to some other uh, counselor or therapist in some way. Can you talk mm. just a little bit about you know where where do you see that, or how do you see that line between? Um, as pastors, us offering biblical counsel um, yes. and this idea of like reparative therapy or, you know, some some deeper counseling around uh, the issues of sexuality. Yeah. So I would say um, it, it's it's being it's using discernment to recognize that um, if there's something 
what is the issue? Again, you know, we need to diagnose things correctly. If this is a sin issue, um, sinful behavior issue, then I, I think it's it's health. Uh, you know, it's, it's sin. If sin is a problem, Christ is the answer. And where pastoral biblical counseling is helpful is that we can speak into that person's life, give this person words of exhortation um, and encouragement, and sometimes rebuke and talk and this is, tell them this is what the Word of God says. Counseling, their methodology is not words of exhortation, but it's actually helping the individual to discover themselves, to come to their own conclusions. And and I think that can be helpful in, in different ways. And also they're equipped to deal with different psychological disorders, which are present and, you know, which are there in in humanity. Uh, but we need to realize that whether that's an issue or not, uh, it's not always present, but if that is the issue, then I think it's helpful. But what I want to encourage pastors to do is view that this has to be a partnership or a team effort. And I really believe that instead of referring people out um, and and almost uh, kind of just passing the baton to a local therapist, the church needs to stay involved. That if anything, the the church, the pastor, the local pastor, assistant pastor, whatever it is, or an elder needs to be almost like uh, the, the quarterback or the coach, you know, calling the plays and making sure he's strongly connected. Because unfortunately, what we find is that in the past, we have relegated and pushed people uh, and just kind of our only answer was to give a kind of referral card. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's it. So. Yes, I think that we need to enlist other people to involve, you know, give those referrals. But as a pastor, you need to stay involved because, again, sin is a problem. Christ is the answer. And where is that context for the, for sanctification and mentoring, mentoring and discipleship happen best? It's in the local church. And I think often in our conversations for the past several years and decades, we have put the local church on the back burner and almost given the impression that the local church has nothing to do with, um, you know, how to help the individual. Um, And I find where people have fallen away is when they have not been strongly connected with uh, the local church, the body of Christ. Uh, So I think that needs to be the, the, the main focus in the victory over sin, whether they're wrestling with with any other, any sin struggle, that's so good, Christopher. So good. I, I just want to thank you for for being with us and kind of opening opening our eyes a bit to how we can, as pastors, really engage in some of these conversations. And, and I love I love how how you how you kind of frame the whole thing and encourage us not to just like you said pass the baton. But mm-hmm. enter into life on life. I mean, this is what we're yes. called to do, right? This is disciple making. This is part of that journey, right? Um, Amen. I want to encourage our listeners. Really, um, I think honestly, and I don't say this often, but I think every single ministry leader needs to to read um, your newest book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, um, mm-hmm. because this is an issue that's that's so prevalent. It's not going away, and we as as the church. Um, we honestly need to be prepared to navigate this in a way that do- doesn't just feel okay to us or keep us out of hot water, you know, because sometimes mm-hmm. I think that's where we, we tend to gravitate toward, but to, to navigate this in a way that is deeply biblical, right? And that's what, you've, that's what you've laid out for us and helped us to understand through this book. So thank you. This is a gift to the church, brother. 
And mm-hmm. uh, thank you for 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 being with us. If, if people want to connect with you, Christopher, um, what's the best way um, aside from from your book? Are there other ways that they can learn more about your speaking ministry and your teaching ministry, and and just kind of connect with you? Yeah, definitely. So my I actually minister with my parents. So it's actually kind of like a family ministry. We minister together because I think it's 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 really powerful hearing from them their story as mother as a father. Um, and then, you know, as I teach as a prodigal, a former prodigal, uh, so our ministry, basically what we do the bulk of our time is we, we travel around and equip churches. We, we want to be sure that we're not, not trying to replace the body, the body of Christ, replace a local church, but actually equip the local church to do what, what Christ has called them to do. And that is to minister the gospel. And so we travel around. And so people can contact me from my website. There's just my full name. Christopher Yuan.com. My last name is spelled Y U A N. I'm also on social media Twitter, Christopher Yuan. Uh, I'm sorry, Christopher Yuan. And Facebook, uh, my ministry page is just facebook.com slash Christopher Yuan. Excellent, Christopher. And we will have links for our listeners in the show notes so that you can uh, connect to the book, connect to um, Christopher, his ministry, and uh, his social media. So, Again, brother, I just want to thank you for for making the time to be with us, for tackling such an important conversation, you know, in our world today, and helping, as you said, come alongside uh, local churches, pastors, ministers to help equip us as as we uh, as we navigate this. Thank you. I, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Jason, for having me on. God bless you. God bless you as well, brother. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance, and if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well, and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.